This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter. Welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I am your host, Aaron Bronstetter, and UFC 287 is now in the rearview mirror, taking place in Miami, Florida. I just got back a couple days ago, and what a memorable event that was. It had all the feels of a big, all the feeling, rather, of a big event. Like Madison Square Garden, like T-Mobile Arena for International Fight Week, the Miami card felt big, and I think that that's why it was such a rousing success. I think that Miami is going to be an annual occasion from here on out. The, the numbers speak for themselves. A very, very successful event for the promotion, and more importantly, a very successful event for the now, once again, middleweight champion of the world, Israel Adesonia, who knocked out Alex Pereira in the second round with about 40 seconds left to go in um, a round that was very, uh, very closely contested, a fight that was very closely contested, until it wasn't. We saw Pereira kind of swarm Israel, and Israel just seemed to have the answer. He seemed to have the uh, antidote for Pereira cornering him up against the cage. And he landed, I don't know if you would call it a one-two, but he touched him with the left and then just absolutely melted him with the right. That right hand came from the depths of, like, I, I don't even know how to explain it. It felt like he was reaching down, grabbing Thor's hammer and hitting him with it. Like, it was one of the most devastating knockouts you'll see in combat sports. And the meaning of it, I think, is really what's most important in this particular situation because you have a guy who Israel has lost to consistently throughout his career. And people don't usually lose to someone consistently. That means you've had to have fought them on at least more than one occasion. He actually has now fought him on three occasions prior to that, two in kickboxing, one in mixed martial arts. I know that was the big story, of course, going into this fight. But for him to be able to do that just about five months after losing to him, Losing his title, everything that he had worked for, the only middleweight to ever defeat him. Five months later, to come back with that sort of mentality, that sort of poise, that sort of drive. And it's not like he was lacking it before, but there was something different about his demeanor when he walked out to the cage on Saturday night. And his preparation seems to have really paid off. And a confusing thing for me was that Alex Pereira seemed to really change his strategy. He had his hands up a lot higher than he usually does. And usually, when he keeps his hands low, that's why he's able to connect with that left hook. Because you don't really see it coming. Of course, Israel is one of the more talented stand-up arts technicians that we've seen in mixed martial arts really ever. So I think that there might have been a little bit of misdirection involved there on Alexa's side that didn't seem to work. But at the end of the day... Israel Adesonia is once again the middleweight champion of the world, and he does it with authority against Alex Pereira. And it really felt big in the moment. It feels big now because there's just so much of that story to kind of unravel. But my immediate reaction was, you got to do a trilogy fight. And that's not because it's 100% necessary. It is 1-1, and oftentimes in mixed martial arts... That is the custom, is to do it again. But the reason why it makes so much sense to me is because there really are not a whole lot of other suitors at middleweight. And I had mentioned Hamza Shemaev. I said Hamza Shemaev is really the only other option that seems viable to me. And I kind of stand by that. And people will say he hasn't really earned a title shot. But if completely smoking Kevin Holland, beating Gilbert Burns in an absolute war, I know these are welterweights, although you could argue that Holland does more fights at middleweight. The way that he's beating people is what makes him intriguing. And I think a lot of people put too much emphasis on who people are beating, not how they're beating them. That's what took Kamaru Usman such a long time to become champion. Is he was dominating fighters. People were not accepting fights with him, and it took him a long time to climb the ladder because it was hard to find those who would actually sign a contract to face him because they knew how good he was. I feel like Hamza Chemaev is going to have the same problem, but... They keep saying October, October, October for him. And what that means to me is that we, well, I, I don't really know 
whether or not this is the case, but it seems to me like he's having visa issues and can't fight in the U.S. Because otherwise, why wait till October? You know, what month is it now? April? How many months until October? Six months from now? Why are, why are you waiting six months for Hamzat Shemayev to face Paulo Costa? Like, something's not adding up here. And I know he's a big draw in Abu Dhabi, but that doesn't mean you can have him fight like this month or next month. <laughs> like, it seems like he has no issues turning it around. He says he wants fights, but what is precluding him from competing right now? Is he unable to compete even in the UK? Because the UK, is, it looks like he's going to have a card at the end of July. So there are just a lot of questions right now as to why he's not competing. And that is really going to put him on a slow track to the title rather than a fast track to the title. But I just don't think right now there's anybody that makes any sense for Israel outside of those two, outside of Alex Pereira and Hamza Shemaev. And I know Drake's Duplessis has entered the conversation. I think that he's viable in the sense that nobody, sorry, he's the only one, I guess, that's nearing the top five that Israel hasn't faced yet. I don't know, is he ranked ahead of Sean Strickland? I would imagine he is. Let's, let's pull up the uh, UFC rankings here. We'll, start, we'll look at this middleweight division and uh, make some uh, assessments here. So middleweight, you got Israel number one. Alex Pereira, well, sorry, Israel's the champion. Alex Pereira is number one. You got Whitaker, who Israel's beaten twice at number two. You got Vittori, who Israel's beaten twice at number three. We've got Cannoneer, who Israel beat last July. We don't really need to see that one again. Kind of a, something of a disappointing fight, but uh, Israel won that one, I think, fairly cleanly. Number five is Paulo Costa, who Israel beat handily. And then, yeah, you've got Drakus Duplessis at six and Sean Strickland at seven. And those are really the only two that are close to the top ten. Sorry, close to the top five, rather, that Israel has not beaten. And then, recently you had Eugene Behrman say he'd like to see Israel face Jamal Hill at light heavyweight. And I like that idea, depending on the status of Yuri Prokoshka. Like, Yuri Prokoshka's got next. And it just, to me, hinges upon whether or not he's ready. If he's ready to go in, like, July, August, you do that fight in July, August. But if Yuri needs more time before he is able to face Jamal Hill, then you can, you know, run some options there. But I also think, like, Uncle Ayev deserves a shot at Jamal Hill. Wahovich, perhaps, you could give a shot at Jamal Hill. There are some good options there. So I'm eager to see what's going to happen with uh, Jamal Hill. I do think that Israel fight makes sense. I mean, Israel, I think, again, going down that list of middleweights when you can't even find a good matchup for him up until number six, means he's run through the best of the division. In some cases, twice. To me, the Pereira fight makes the most sense for Israel. If you're just going to base it on the information in front of us, which is that they're 1-1. Alex beat him back in November. But what happens if Alex Pereira kind of fizzles from here? Like, what's his legacy going to be? I know Israel's legacy, I think, is going to be one of the all-time greats. I think he's established that. I think this win, especially over his boogeyman, really catapults him in the conversation of all-time greats. To me... And, you know, whenever I bring this up, people are like, oh, you're a Fairweather fan. Or, you, you know, you're, you're clearly a UFC noob. But Israel, to me, is starting to nip at the heels of, of Anderson Silva. And I'll preface that by saying the peak of my fandom before I started covering the sport was following Anderson Silva and loving Anderson Silva. Like, I thought Anderson Silva was like, I still have him as one of the all-time greats, despite how the end of his career has gone. But if you compare resumes, one thing about Anderson is Anderson got a, a kind of a late start in the UFC. But here are his middleweight championship defenses. Travis Luter lost weight, but I'll still call that a defense because he could have lost the title had he lost that. Um, it would have would have been vacated, I believe. Oh, no, actually, sorry, that ended up being a non-title bout, so I, I take that back. But I'd say you can, Luter was up there. You can say Luter. Nate Marquardt, who uh, obviously had worked his way up. Rich Franklin, who was the man before Silva was the man. And that was a rematch. Dan Henderson, who came over from Pride and 
was anointed as perhaps the uh, the best suitor for Anderson Silva at the time. Silva ran through him. Patrick Cote got injured in their fight, but uh, regardless, still a title defense. Talos Latis title defense, not the most uh, impressive title defense, but I think that was mostly because of how Latis fought that fight. Forrest Griffin uh, was at light heavyweight. Demian Maia, who was the man, but I, I think that, again, that was a, similar to the latest fight, didn't allow Silva to shine. Then, of course, there was the Chael Sonnen fight, where Israel was losing up until two minutes left in the fight, where he, he caught him in the, in the triangle. And then there's the Vitor Belfort, Yushin Okami rematch with Chael Sonnen. So those are his... Well, those are his middleweight title defenses, and there's a lot of them. So let's say I don't count Luder since that was non-title. I can't. I think that was probably a three-round fight too. So let's let's throw that one out. You got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten title defenses. If you compare Israel's resume, I don't think he's he's there yet. But for him, you've got if you count his him if you count his win over Whitaker as a defense because he was the interim championship champion, I know he does. You got one, two, three, four, five, six. And then a win against Pereira. So I think he's getting there. Like I don't think he's there yet. And but I but I also think that Israel at age thirty three, like how old was Anderson Silva when he won the title? He won the title. It was 2006. So he was 31 when he won the title. Israel's 33 now. So he really had a, a late title run in terms of his career. And when you look at Israel, he's someone who I think has kind of cleaned out the division. And that's why I think the matchup against Hill... Which is, again, something that everybody wanted from Anderson at the time. They wanted Anderson to move up to 205. But I think with Hill, stylistically, that's a, a better matchup for him than Jan Blahovich was. We'll see, though. I think that there's a lot of time to determine this, although I'm sure Israel is hungry to get back in there, like he always is. Always wants to fight three times in a year. This was his first time competing in 2023. But I just don't see a whole lot of great suitors for him. And then in terms of Alex Pereira... The talk was that he was moving up to 205. I, I kind of love that because I think that there are a lot of really interesting matchups for him at 205. Like, I would love to see him against really anybody inside the top 10. Ryan Spann, Paul Craig, Uzdemir, Johnny Walker, Nikita Krylov, Anthony Smith, Rakic, Bojovic, Ankalaev, Yiri. Like, all of those are awesome matchups for Alex Pereira. But I think that his time, if his time as middleweight is done, then you don't explore the trilogy fight. But if he wants to stay at middleweight, I think a trilogy fight still makes a lot of sense. I know Israel feels like it's behind him. Dana White was kind of moving on at the press conference, but it's always unfinished business if it's 1-1. Not to mention the two kickboxing matches, which will never, Israel's never going to get those back. So the way I look at it is, if Israel believes the score is settled, and his coach is saying, we want to see Pereira win a couple more fights, if he wants another shot, I understand where they're coming from, but at the end of the day, you have to book sellable fights, right? Like, I don't think that Israel against Duplessis is... I mean, they'll sell off of Israel's popularity, but I don't think it's a fight that people are really clamoring to see at this point in time. And what I'd like to see is Duplessis face a Whitaker or a Vittori. I think if Whitaker gets one more win, you can make a case that he's starting to perhaps get that third opportunity against Israel. But a lot to digest from this main event. And then you had Bilal Muhammad say he might be interested in moving up to 85. Uh, you know, he, he had mentioned he wanted to face Sean Strickland or Hamzat at 85. But, uh, you know, I was standing and chatting with Bilal Muhammad quite a bit this week. He would be very small for 85, in my opinion. I think it might just be the frustration talking. But there you have it. That's the... Uh, that's the clarity that we now have in terms of the middleweight division. And really, there is no clarity. We're, we're not really sure where we're going to go from here. And I'm interested to see exactly what happens. But uh, you got to hand it to Israel for being able to 
do what he did. It's, it honestly is one of the, probably the crowning achievement of his career. I'm sure he would disagree with that, but his ability to, five months after losing everything that he had earned in the UFC, to come back five months later and defeat Alex Pereira like that is, uh, you know, nothing short of a, of a painting, you know, a painter painting a masterpiece. And I saw a lot of people say it was kind of a lucky shot, you know. I don't really have an answer to that. Like, I don't know exactly what Israel's strategy was. But it certainly looked like it was by design. Because why else would he be baiting Alex Pereira into, you know, Pereira kind of walking him down. Which seemed to be the exact thing he didn't want to do in the the, uh, first MMA fight. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, just a phenomenal performance by Israel. And... I'm not exactly sure where he goes from here, to be honest. I think there's, uh, there isn't really a clear option, which makes things interesting. Co-main event, Gilbert Burns defeats Jorge Masvidal 30-27 on two cards, 29-28 on another, and Masvidal retires following the fight. And I think it was the right time for him to retire. I mean, I heard him on the MMA Hour this week, and he was talking about how he just felt like his instincts and his brain and physical abilities were not aligned at least that's how i interpreted what he was saying that like when he saw openings that previously he would have been able to capitalize on he wasn't able to be fast enough to do it this time around and i don't know if this was the most impressive performance from gilbert burns but he certainly did whatever it took to win that fight and he avoided dangerous situations as much as he could, but he was still landing on the feet. His grappling was on point. And he did accuse Masvidal of perhaps kind of greasing up before the fight, uh, which he has since apologized for. He said, you know, Jorge had a great career. I don't know for a fact that that's true, so I, I should, you know, I'd like to apologize to him, which, you know, Gilbert Burns is one of the absolute classiest guys in this sport. And I also have to thank Gilbert because he taught me uh, a tip for making eggs. Well, that sounds weird. But I was interviewing him, and I was—I saw his. Uh, he did a, a day in the life of Gilbert Burns on YouTube, and he said that every morning he eats eggs and fruit. And I'm the same way. I, I eat eggs and sometimes fruit every morning. But the issue I was having, you know, I cooked them on a cast iron, and whenever I was flipping them, every now and then they'd slip off, and the yolk would get all messed up, and I'd be—it just—it ruins my morning. When I'm not able to, A, properly crack the egg so that the yolk doesn't go flat. I've started to crack them into a mug and pour it in, which I'm sure is weird for people to, to hear. I crack the egg into a mug and then pour it into the cast iron. And I do it with each egg individually. But when an egg, when a yolk gets ruined, I, I like to have my yolk like pretty much over medium. I want it to still be a little bit runny. Maybe that's more over easy. So the tip he gave me was you get a, a see-through lid for your cast iron skillet. Very simple. First thing I ordered when I got back, a lid for the cast iron skillet. And it's been a game changer for me. So thank you, Gilbert Burns, for looking out for my breakfast and helping me be able to make eggs the way that I want to eat them. So thank you, Gilbert. I appreciate you. But yeah, big win for Gilbert Burns. And now the welterweight division, I mean, it has some clarity right now. Colby's getting the next shot, it appears. Like, it doesn't seem like anything is, is taking the UFC off of that path. And Gilbert Burns afterwards said, I've been taking every single fight. Whenever you ask me to fight someone, I'll do it. But this time I'm putting my foot down. I'm demanding a title shot or to be the backup for the title shot. And Dana White semi-committed to Gilbert being the backup for the next title shot. Now, what does that do to Bilal Muhammad? I don't know. But Bilal is still ranked ahead of Gilbert after this weekend. And I'm sure it's very frustrating for him that now, not only has Colby Covington jumped him, but it appears Gilbert Burns does as well. I feel bad for Bilal Muhammad because uh, he's a nice guy, good guy, on a great winning streak. And now they want to match him up with Shavkat Rachmanov, who's like the, the absolute hammer of this division. So I feel for the guy. But at the same time, if you want to fight for the championship, you're going to have to beat the best guys coming up, and you're going to have to beat these world beaters. It's not that Bilal hasn't already done that, but that's the nature of the beast. So we'll see where it goes from here. But uh, Gilbert Burns, 
gets it done, and it looks like he is in the mix for the championship. And listen, at 30, what is it, 36 now, I think, Gilbert Burns? 36 years of age, turning 37 soon? I think the right move for him is to wait, is to just be the backup. If something happens, something happens, but just be on call. And I think that after Covington versus Leon Edwards, regardless of who wins that fight, I don't think Edwards has been championship the champion for long enough that if Colby beats him, it'll be an immediate rematch. Unless it's like a super, super, super close fight. Very, very unlikely. I, I think that there's going to be some sort of rematch. But I do think that Gilbert Burns should wait until perhaps the end of the year. Or maybe January if they're going to do another Brazil event before he uh, competes for the championship. I think I think he's earned that right because he has taken on such tough opponents. Took the Hamzat fight, did, did the UFC a solid. Hamzat was barely ranked, and now he's ranked in the top three, even though it looks like he's moving up to middleweight. But I understand his frustration. I understand Bal Muhammad's frustration. But listen, I keep saying this, and people think I'm defending Colby Covington, but ultimately, when you look at the rankings, Colby Covington is next in line. Usman's been defeated twice by Edwards. He's ranked number one. Covington's number two. The people that do the rankings have the ability to change this. They vote every single week. If they don't believe Colby is next in line, it's up to them. They're the ones that have to move Bilal or Gilbert Burns up. And they're not doing it. So, if you are the UFC and people are saying, well, there's no meritocracy here, they're, they're taking the popular guy, all they have to do is point to the rankings. Say, hey, these rankings are updated every single week. And Colby Covington has stayed at number two. He hasn't moved. And the people that are Colby backers are going to love that I'm saying this. And the people that hate Colby are going to hate that I'm saying this. And I've, I've come to terms with that. Because at the end of the day, I don't have a horse in the race. Like, I, I, I would love to see any, you know, I'd love to see Burns get a title shot. Sure, I'd love to see. And he has gotten a title shot previously. And Colby's gotten two title shots previously. And I'd love to see Bilal Muhammad get his first title shot. But what it comes down to is looking at the rankings and just from an, if I'm trying to be objective... That's the way I look at it is if he wasn't next in line, then he shouldn't be ranked as if he is next in line. It's just the reality of the situation. So it looks like that's what we're getting next is uh, Leon Edwards versus Colby. Probably at the end of July in London if the UFC are, in fact, going to make that a pay-per-view, which Dana White said they're, they're trying to do, but it didn't seem like it was a done deal yet. Rob Font with an impressive win over Adrian Yanez. Man, Rob Font just lit Yanez up when he had the opening. And I didn't really like this matchup for Adrian, to be honest. I you know, I uh I just thought Rob Font, if he hit him once and stung him, he was just gonna be relentless and he was. I didn't think he'd be able to get him out of there in the first round. I thought this was gonna be a close decision, but I, I just thought that Rob Font just executed. He took took a year off, went back to the drawing board, recovered. And, uh, again, I just, uh, just a really tough matchup. I mean, listen, it's the bantamweight division. If you go up and down the bantamweight division, Yanez is ranked number 12. Here's, who, here's, here's who's ahead of him. Tell me where the easy fight is. I mean, maybe you'll argue Pedro Munoz, but Umar Nurmagomedov, that ain't an easy fight. Ricky Simone, certainly not an easy fight. Pedro Munoz, I think that would be a, a fight that would have been more tailored to Adrian. Same with Dominic Cruz. You have Song Yudong, not an easy fight, but I think that Adrian can win that fight. And, that, and then you hit kind of the threshold. When you get into that top six of the bantamweight division, and there's seven people there because one is the champion, you've got Aljo, Marab, Sean O'Malley, Corey Sanhagen, Piotr Jan, Marlon Vera, Rob Font. Like, that's murderer's row. Rob Font is kind of stuck at number six because he's faced a lot of these guys. And by a lot of these guys, I just mean Cheeto Vera. Because now that I look at it, he's only faced, I believe, Cheeto of that group. I can't remember if he's fought Sanhagen. I don't think so. But... When you get into that top six, you better be good. Of the guys that are ranked outside of the top six, I think Umar Nurmagomedov is probably the only one of those guys that can crack this top six. And maybe Yanez could beat Cheeto on a good night. But Adrian is 29, man. He's got a lot of time. He just really needs to work on that defense. He gets hit a lot, and if you get hit a lot, Rob Font will light you up like a Christmas tree. That's just the way it is. If you look at the stats between Rob Font 
and Chido Vera and Rob Font and, and Jose Aldo, two fights that Rob Font clearly lost, he outstruck them both, both by a good margin. So, kudos to Rob Font. He, he did everything he had to do. And uh, when he explained, you know, when I was coming up, Marlon Moraes gave me the shot. I'm going to give Yanez the shot. He's just a classy guy. I think that uh, that's a good way to approach it. Kevin Holland defeats Santiago Ponzinibbio. He says that he fought this hand, this fight with barely using his right hand, that he had not put his right hand into four-ounce gloves prior to this fight. And I kind of believe him because Kevin Holland's kind of a different kind of crazy. But he uh, he puts Ponzinibbio away in the third round and um, did so with just a, a beautiful, beautiful, I believe, it was a light, I believe it was a left hook, if I recall. But just a beautiful sequence to put him away. And Ponzinibbio contested it, but I, I Ponzinibbio was face down, man. He was out. And then Christian Rodriguez defeats Raul Rosas Jr. Christian Rodriguez missed weight, which I think might be held against him a little bit for this one. But I was saying it all week. I thought, not even all week, but as soon as the fight was announced, that Christian Rodriguez was going to be too much too soon for Raul Rosas Jr. And that uh, that's what came into fruition. Rodriguez, 29-27, 29-28, and 29-28. I didn't really see a 10-8 round in there, but... Be that as it may, it was a pretty clear round one Roses, pretty clear 2-3 for Rodriguez. And by pretty clear, I mean very clear. Like, it was very apparent who won all of those rounds. And, you know, I was on morning combat on Monday, and uh, I think Luke has a little bit more of a nuclear opinion on uh, Raul Roses Jr. at this point in time. I, uh, I feel like Raul Roses Jr. is very skilled. And at 18 years of age, I think if he can continue to improve... He can be a top five bantamweight one day. It's just a matter of timing, right? Like, at some point in time in your UFC career, more likely than not, you're going to be the nail. And Rosas was always the hammer. He was always the hammer. And uh, this time around, he was very much the nail. Ran out of gas. Christian Rodriguez put it on him. He was patient. He was methodical. Didn't make any mistakes. And, uh, to me, Christian Rodriguez, you know, I was saying he was the real deal when he was on Contender Series. Like, I, I, I was very high on Christian Rodriguez. I think that he's uh, an excellent fighter. And uh, it's not that Roses isn't. It's just that Roses is 18, and at this stage in his career, I think he needs easier matchups. And I just don't know how many easy matchups there are in the bantamweight division right now. No disrespect to Jay Perrin, but I think that Jay Perrin was probably the level that he needs right now. And he needs, they need to keep finding him opponents like that, but... They, there aren't a lot of them. Like, you just had Guido Canetti. I think he was released. Like, put him against a Guido Canetti. I thought that Christian Rodriguez was a terrible matchup for him. And uh, of all of the predictions I made for uh, this event, that was probably the, the one that came true. The other ones that I made, yeah, not, not quite. But that one I was fairly confident on just because I knew how good Christian Rodriguez is. It's not to take anything away from Raul Rosas Jr. I think Rosas Jr. still has a lot of time to make up ground. I'm not as uh, as pessimistic as Luke Thomas is on the future of Raul Rosas Jr. But, I mean, Luke has a phenomenal mind for this sport, and maybe he'll end up being right. But uh, I'm not willing to write him off just yet. I, I still think that there's a lot left to see from this kid, and that he is a natural. Like I, I think he really is a natural. He's really good at what he does, but he just needs to learn how to do more and improve all around. And that'll take time. But he will certainly need a confidence boost in his next fight. Kevin Gastelum defeats Chris Curtis. Unanimous decision. Man, Kelvin Gastelum looked phenomenal in the in that first round. In the second round, I thought he looked really good too. And I, I think Chris Curtis won that third round. That was a close fight. That was a fun fight. And I really feel for Chris Curtis because he's been on social media since this fight ended. And Chris Curtis is a bit selfish. Like, I mean, I think he would admit that. He's, I think he, he's an emotional guy. And uh, he's someone who seemingly is willing to air his grievances on Twitter frequently. And, uh, you know, I, I'm okay with that because I think it's, uh, it's healthy to air your grievances. But he feels that that second round where there was an unintentional clashing of heads that basically dropped Chris Curtis and he said that he basically got knocked out by it and came back that cost him the fight now the crazy thing about that is 
if Chris Curtis lost that fight in the second round, if he got knocked out by Kelvin Gastelum, I think that he could win an appeal. If he appealed it and said, hey, there was a clashing of heads, that turned the tide of his fight. Now, if he appealed it, I don't think that they would accept that appeal because he ended up coming back in the fight and winning the third round. So how much of, a, of an impact could it have possibly have had? But the truth of the matter is, it had a drastic impact on the outcome of the fight because up until then, in the second round, Chris Curtis was up. Chris Curtis was hitting Gaston with the more impactful shots, the more damaging shots. And that sequence, because the judges likely did not see it was a clashing of heads, it was a very fast sequence. The referee didn't see it. The announcers only saw it, I believe, on the replay. That sequence may have cost him the fight. Because if you, you know, if Chris Curtis doesn't fall and isn't hit with a barrage of ground and pound from Kelvin Gastelum, I think Chris Curtis might win that round and, that, and subsequently win the fight. So that did turn the tides of the fight. And I think that commissions should be a lot more open to correcting human error. Nobody's to blame in this situation. I'm not going to say the referee didn't, you know, he, it's their job to see it. He might have been out of position. It was a fast sequence. When you're in there and you're the referee, you need to make these split-second judgment calls all the time. And sometimes you miss things. And that's why we have the term human error. Humans are not perfect. We're fallible creatures. And I think the referee missed it. And I think if you're the commission or a commission of any sort and you see something like this go down... I think you need to consider overturning these fights to no contests. If a referee misses an eye poke and it costs someone the fight, or they miss a groin shot and it costs someone the fight, I think you should be able to go to the commission and say, hey, here's the tape, here's where I was at at this stage in the fight, here's what happened, and here's why it cost me the fight. And you should be able to make your case for why it should be overturned. I don't think a commission would overturn it in this, at this stage, but I do think that uh, Chris Curtis has a very, very valid gripe here. That... Um, a foul or a, uh, an unintentional foul ended up causing the fight. Luana Pinheiro defeats uh, Michelle Waterson via unanimous decision. This was a close fight, split decision. Sorry, I said unanimous decision. It was a split decision, rather. One judge gave the fight to Waterson. Close fight. I mean, hey, Luana Pinheiro is really good. I actually didn't love this matchup for her, but I uh, and, and I can see why now. fight was, I think, a lot closer than the uh, odds indicated, but... I thought Waterson was going to retire after this fight, to be honest. I, I, she's had a really... When was her last win? Michelle Waterson has now lost three in a row. Her last win was to Angela Hill nearly two years ago in a fight that I think a lot of people thought Angela Hill won. It was a split decision. So she's had, she's had one split decision win in her last six fights and five losses. So, personally, I think that... Uh, I don't know what Waterson is still has the gain from being in, in the sport, aside from, of course, just being a competitor. But, you know, she's 37 years of age. She turned 37 back in January. And I just don't know. Like, maybe she wants to go out on a win. But when you're hanging around to go out on a win, that win oftentimes doesn't come. So let's see what she does from here. But, uh, I, was, I, I honestly thought she was going to retire if she lost this fight. She hadn't been saying anything about it. I just thought that it was the, the right time. But, you know, maybe she still will. Who knows? But uh, split decision. Showed she still has the fighting spirit. Looked good in that fight. Could have won a, a decision. Joe Pfeiffer defeats uh, Gerald Mearshut. I'll be honest. I didn't get the chance to watch this fight because I was doing an interview during it. And um, when I'm backstage, if, an inter if someone comes to be interviewed, I'm interviewing them. It doesn't matter. You know, whether a fight's about to start, unless it's like the main event, you can kind of say, hey, I don't, I don't want to talk to anybody during the, the main event. But Joe Pfeiffer gets a win over Gerald Mearshart, um, first round win. And uh, kudos to him. I, I enjoyed listening to him on the MMA Hour this week. Seems like a really genuine guy who uh, is very honest, which I like. He's not, you know, much of a trash talker. He just kind of asks for fights. He's very realistic about where he's at in the division right now. I enjoyed listening to him speak. Um, you know, Gerald is a guy that I really like and uh, disappointed to see him lose in this sort of fashion, but I know he's going to bounce back uh, in the future. Tough matchup. I mean, Gerald just takes every matchup that is offered to him. That's the, the thing with him. He's not very discerning when it comes to who he's going to be facing. Lupita Godinez, the alone Canadian on the card, 
defeats Cynthia Calvillo. Split decision. This was a close one. I could see a case for Godinez winning all three rounds. One judge gave her a 30-27. It's one of those ones where it's like a close fight where every round is close, but you still give the, the nod to one fighter in those three rounds. But a very close fight, and Cynthia Calvillo subsequently has been released from the UFC after that loss. I mean, she's having a tough run right now. Has lost five in a row. We'll see where she goes from here. Uh, I don't really know. It seems like the PFL are looking at perhaps making a 125-pound division. I know that there's a 25 division in Bellator. Or maybe she decides she doesn't want to continue her career. Who knows? But she was somebody who had massive upside for at a time. When Dana White was comparing her to the likes of like Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey, believing she could be the next star. And hey, I can't blame Dana White for that. When you make that sort of determination, it's on the fighter to deliver, right? Like You can say this person has some, something of an it factor. You can identify that. And that happens from time to time. But they need to win. Like Paige Van Zandt had an it factor. Wasn't able to win. Right? Like, is what it is. Ignacio Bahamondes defeats Trey Ogden. Unanimous decision. Uh, Nice victory for Ignacio, who uh, has had a year off. This one was at a catchweight 160 pounds. I was surprised that Ogden didn't try to wrestle more because just on the feet, there are not a lot of people that are going to be able to beat Bahamondes in this weight class. He's just long. He's rangy. And that's his background, right? I think you got to take Bahamundes down if you want to try to beat him. Steve Garcia defeats Shyland Nurdenbeka. This was a great comeback. Nurdenbeka hurt him badly in the first round, and then Garcia came back to finish Nurdenbeka in the second round. And uh, Sam Hughes defeats Jacqueline Emmerim by unanimous decision. People seemingly got upset with me when I said that uh, Sam Hughes may have squandered a great performance by her post-fight comments and her post-fight media availability. She said that her boyfriend bet on her to win. I think she said he was, I think it was a thousand bucks she said something. It wasn't a big number. And her boyfriend's betting on her. But here's the thing. And I'm not trying to like be a snitch here or anything along those lines. I mean, she came out and said it. It was in the most public of public places where you could say it. But the code of conduct has been modified recently to cover this sort of thing. Anybody in your inner circle, anybody who's close to you is not permitted to bet on you. And I don't think the UFC care that much that the fighters do it or that that, like if it was up to the UFC I think they'd be fine with it the problem is that betting is not regulated by the UFC betting is regulated state to state and it's got a lot of oversight and they want to avoid any sort of insider betting possible we saw what happened with the James Krause situation still under investigation but there's a big problem with people close to fighters having information Surrounding those fighters and betting on them. And hey, her boyfriend's information would be like, hey, I saw Sam had a great camp. I think she's going to win. Is that insider information? Kind of. I mean, <laughs> I know he's not betting against her, but it's, you know, you're around that fighter all the time. It's technically an insider bet. Personally, I don't care. Like, if you ask me, is it okay if her boyfriend bet on her? I think it's fine. It's not up to me, though. It's in the code of conduct. They, they did this whole overhaul of the code of conduct regarding wagering for a very, very important reason, right? Like, it, the, the, the veracity of the sport was being questioned. And when you mess with that, it's a big problem for the UFC. So I, I, I hope nothing happens to her. Believe me, I'm not trying to get anybody punished here. That's not my intent. I'm just calling it out for what it is, which is, in my eyes, a violation of the Code of Conduct. Which, again, I thought Sam Hughes had a tremendous performance. Amarim did everything in her power to try to finish her in the first round. She hung in tough and then clearly won the last two rounds. So, congratulations to Sam Hughes. Like, I'm not trying to diminish her win at all. I just think she needs to be careful when she says something like that in the, in the public sphere. Because with what's been going on with the UFC and betting... I think you're, you're, you got to tread carefully. That's all I'll say about it. You just got to tread carefully because we don't really know, you know, the, the code of conduct is, I think, pretty clear about this. And uh, I'm not trying to get her in any sort of trouble. I, I hope that she gets no trouble whatsoever. It's just a matter of the integrity of the sport hinges on fighters doing the right thing when it comes to wagering. And the UFC don't want to have any problems. I'm sure that the reason why they try to 
shore up their code of conduct with wagering is because they want to protect themselves at all costs from having to deal with regulators again with this sort of thing and to protect the integrity of the sport. So there's a recap for UFC 287. Let's continue talking about combat sports. There's some big news just came down. Uh, I got about four or five emails about it. It appears that Nate Diaz has his first post-UFC bout. I don't know if you want to call it a bout or a match, but he will be boxing against Jake Paul. Yes, Nate Diaz versus Jake Paul is confirmed, which is pretty big news in this space. I've always said I'm only going to talk about Jake Paul's boxing matchups when they're MMA adjacent, and this one is about as MMA adjacent as it gets. It's August the 5th in Dallas, Texas, at the American Airlines Center, I believe it's still called. These arena names change all the time. And it's live on DAZN pay-per-view. So Jake Paul versus Nate Diaz. Pretty unbelievable. And to be honest, not unexpected. You know, obviously with Nate Diaz finishing out his UFC contract, finished out on a win against Tony Ferguson, he ended up really raising his stock as he entered free agency. It had been rumored that he was going to box against Jake Paul for some time. I know there had been some back and forth. I think there was also a rumor he was going to box Logan Paul, and that there was like paperwork to get that done, and it didn't end up coming through. And now he ends up facing Jake Paul. I hope he's getting paid a lot of money, because it, it appears like... The rumor is that he turned down the Ultimate Fighter, that he was going to be facing Conor McGregor, and decided that he wanted to just explore free agency. I imagine it's going to make a lot of money, and I imagine that he's going to get pay-per-view points for it and a pretty hefty purse for taking this boxing match. Uh, Jake is quite a bit bigger than him, if I'm not mistaken, so I'm curious. I should see if there's something in this release about a weight class or anything along those lines. If they had agreed on... Yeah, 185 pounds. So... Yeah, I mean, Nate is going to have to basically box at close to his walk-around weight, I'd imagine. I imagine he probably walks around in the 190 range, and Jake probably is about 10 pounds bigger than he is, just in terms of their walk-around weight. On on fight night, I don't don't know what the difference will be. But uh, either way, this is uh, an interesting one, and I'm curious to see what the the full card ends up looking like, if they end up putting other mixed martial artists on this card, or if they uh, just end up going with these two. But... uh, I imagine this is going to have a really big feel to it. It feels to me like this is the biggest Jake Paul fight that could be put together. I know the Tommy Fury fight, a rematch of some sort, might have been personal to him. But in terms of a money fight, this is the one. I mean, you know, with Conor McGregor not available, Nate Diaz is probably the, the next best thing. Wow. Didn't, didn't uh, expect to just be getting all these press releases on this uh, random Wednesday afternoon. But here we are. Don't really know how to break this one down. It's just, uh, it's, it's again, I just think it, it seems big. It feels big. It's happening at a, a large venue. And I think Nate Diaz is really the perfect suitor for Jake Paul at this point in time. We'll see what he's all about. He keeps beating all these MMA guys. And they were 170-pound, naturally 170-pound fighter. Um, you know, Nate, of course, most of his career was at 155, but more recently fought at 170. So we'll see. I sent a message to Mike the Truth Jackson uh, on Twitter saying, uh, you know, if you're going to box Jake Paul, or Jake Shields rather, now's probably the time. It's in Texas where Mike Jackson's from, and Nate Diaz, of course, is a longtime training partner of Jake Shields. So that would make sense to me. I think if you can, if you can sign that one up, you do it. <laughs> But uh, there you have it, August the 5th. And I'm not sure what day the UFC is booking their pay-per-view for. My thought was that that pay-per-view was going to be in Dallas, which I I would imagine it's not anymore (laughs) if it's supposed to be on that date. I don't know if August 5th is the date they were targeting for their August pay-per-view. But um, I figured they'd have at least one pay-per-view in Texas this year. And basically the rest of the calendar is filled up now in terms of pay-per-view aside from August, if if you're putting your best guess forward. So let's move ahead to that. And we'll start off with the news that yours truly sort of broke, I guess, uh, this past week. UFC 289 
will be heading to Vancouver on June the 10th, headlined by a trilogy fight between Amanda Nunes and Juliana Pena. Now, the response to this fight hasn't been... It's been, it's been mixed, I'll, say, I'll call, it, call it that. It's been a bit of a mixed bag of, of whether or not people are interested in this trilogy fight. But like Israel and Pereira, it's 1-1, and there are just not a whole lot of other suitors for Amanda Nunes. You know, people are talking about Irina Aldana. From what I understand, she's got a bit of an injury right now. But to me, there just are not a whole lot of options for Amanda Nunes. Like, if you want to have a title fight in Canada, and you're looking at divisions, they just announced today uh, via Mark Raimondi, um, who credited someone else, I can't remember who reported it first, but... Uh, Pantoja and Moreno looks like it's going to be at UFC 290 International Fight Week so that won't be the co-main event here and I don't know if we're going to get a title fight as the co-main event to be perfectly honest I would be honestly surprised if we do but I think that uh, if you go division by division there's not a whole lot of options that could have headlined this Vancouver card so to get the greatest pound for pound female fighter in combat sports history, or at least in MMA history, Amanda Nunes on the card. I think that's a good attraction to have. I'm just not sure people want to see the trilogy fight with Pena. But again, Pena is the only fighter who has beaten Amanda Nunes in, what, like seven years? Something along those lines? When did she fight Zingano? It might even be more. If you look at Amanda Nunes's resume, she's turning 35 soon, and she had not lost a fight since almost 10 years so 2014 was her last loss prior to Pena. So she went seven years without losing a fight. Seven plus years. Massive run. And Pena's the only one to beat her. I know she's already exacted revenge. It was by decision. Maybe she wants to put an exclamation point on it. When I asked her, she was just saying, you know, whatever the fight the UFC wants, that's what I sign up for. Didn't seem like she was too keen on it. Didn't seem like she cared that much about beating Pena again. But I'll tell you who does care a lot, Juliana Pena. Juliana Pena has been asking for this rematch for a long time, and she finally gets it. So it'll be three straight fights for both of them where they've had the same opponent. Cormier, DC-type deal. Although I think DC fought... Did DC fight once in between? Yeah, he he fought uh, Derek Lewis. So this might be the first time really in UFC history that we've seen three fights in a row, unless... Was Figueredo? I'm trying to remember when Al- Al- uh, Alex Perez fought Figueredo. Yeah, so Moreno and Figueredo fought three times in a row. Right, okay, so this will be the second time that we've seen three championship fights in a row between the, th- the same two fighters. And I, I get it. I'll just say I get it. I think that it's uh, it makes... It makes sense to have that as the championship fight. I know perhaps it's not the main event everybody was looking for, but I don't know what they were looking for. Like if you go through the available weight classes, they're just it's kind of slim pickings right now. I think the I was telling people the best case scenario would have been Hill versus Yuri Prokhashka, but it doesn't seem like Yuri is going to be ready to go by June. Some other fights that have been announced, not necessarily done, because I spoke to Wonderboy Thompson, who is. Supposed to be facing uh, Michelle Pereira. He said the fight wasn't done yet, but it looks like it is being targeted, at least for the card. You have Thompson versus Pereira. You have uh, Miranda Maverick against Jasmine Jazdevicious. So that's the first Canadian. Second Canadian is Marc Andre Berrio against Eric Anders. You've got the third Canadian, uh, Diana Belbitza, taking on Maria Oliveira. You've got the fourth, Kyle Nelson, taking on Blake Builder. You've got Matt Chanel versus David Dvorak. No Canadians there. You've got Dan Ige versus Nate Landwehr. No Canadians there. I love that fight, though. And you've got Hakeem Dawadu versus Lucas Almeida. That's the fifth Canadian. And sixth Canadian is Eamon Zahabi versus Ari Kaleng. So there are still some Canadians that have not been announced for this card. You've got Tanner Bozer fighting this weekend. Jillian Robertson fighting this weekend. Charles Jordan fighting at 288. So he's probably not going to be on this card. Mike Malott fought recently, but I think he could probably fight again. I think he was on that same card with Jasmine. So uh, I imagine he is somebody who could end up on this card. Wouldn't be surprised if we saw Mike Malott on the card. Chad N. Helliger hasn't fought in a while. He might be added to this card. 
wouldn't be surprised there either. And uh, trying to think if there's any other Canadians that I am forgetting. Yes, there is um, Johan Linus. Johan Linus could also end up on this card. So we'll see how it ends up going. But uh, that's uh, who we have targeted. And I wouldn't be surprised if they maybe add some, uh, you know, talent that I haven't fought in in the UFC yet. Some uh, local regional talent. Jamie Siraj is available. He's somebody who I think is worthy. Um, oh, also Jamie Lynn Horth, who's recently signed to the UFC, probably won't be on this card either, even though she's from the Vancouver area. So we'll see. But, uh, you know, Shane Campbell, I think, has earned another shot in the UFC. So there are some uh, Canadians that might end up getting uh, added uh, as the weeks start uh, coming closer to this particular event. But there you have it. June 10th, Rogers Arena, UFC 289. Nunes versus Pena 3. Boom. And then we have 290, as I mentioned, International Fight Week. It looks like 291 they're trying to have in London. 292 in August is the only one I'm not really certain of. I'm thinking 293 ends up in Vegas because they tried to do four a year in Vegas. I think that the uh, October card is going to be, well, it is going to be Abu Dhabi. They've announced it. November MSG, December Vegas. So that's like the rest of the calendar for pay-per-view. So I think really the only spot left is uh, August. Best guess, Boston might be a, a place where they end up holding it. So we'll see. I know Boston's been rumored for some time, but it might end up being a fight night, but I think they'd like to do a pay-per-view there as well. So that's the uh, roundup right now for the upcoming events that are going to be taking place. And, of course, we've got uh, this weekend's card. UFC on ESPN. Max Holloway taking on Arnold Allen at the T-Mobile Center, not to be confused with T-Mobile Arena, T-Mobile Center in Kansas City, Missouri. Max Holloway versus Arnold Allen is your main event. Let's pull up the odds here, courtesy of our friends at FanDuel Canada, and break this one down. Now, to me, Holloway's a minus 196 favorite, Arnold Allen plus 152. I think these odds make a lot of sense. I mean, Arnold Allen's on a good win streak right now, but man, it seems like whenever people end up you know, going up to Max Holloway, facing Max Holloway, it doesn't end well for them. And if you look at Max Holloway's fights overall, here are his losses. Three to Volkanovski, two to Dustin Poirier, and then very early in his career, we're talking 10 years ago, Dennis Bermudez and Conor McGregor. Like those are his only losses. His last non-title fight, oh, actually, well, he's, his last two non-title fights he won. So those were against Calvin Cater and Yair Rodriguez. And then prior to that, he had fought uh, Ricardo Lamas in 2016. So that was his last non-title fight before those two recent ones. But uh, I'm eager to see how Holloway looks. You know, he's I enjoyed speaking with him this week. And I uh, enjoyed speaking to Arnold Allen as well. Arnold Allen is on a massive win streak right now in terms of UFC wins. He's at 10. So almost a certainty that if he ends up beating Max Holloway here that he's going to earn a title shot. The co-main event features Billy Quarantillo and Edson Barboza. Quarantillo is a minus 180 favorite. That's a risky proposition because I think Edson Barboza, when he faces featherweights that are kind of at this stage in their career, he tends to have good performances against them. Personally, I would stay away from this one. I think uh, minus 180 plus is a bit of a hefty price tag for Quarantillo. To me, kind of a dog or pass situation, but, uh, you know, Billy Q has been uh, on point lately, and uh, he'd be a tough guy to, to go against. Dustin Jacoby, minus 186. Uh, Azamat Mirzakhanov, plus 144. I, I like Jacoby here, um, but I've had a terrible read on Jacoby fights. I always pick him to lose, and he wins, and then when I pick him to win, he loses. I think he wins this fight, so you might want to bet on Mirzakhanov based on my track history of picking Justin, uh, Dustin Jacoby fights. Iwan Kutelava, minus 130. Tanner Bozer, plus 102. This is going to be a great fight. But I, I'm going to go with Tanner Bozer here. I just think Bozer's cardio is going to outlast Kutelava down the stretch. I might look at a, a Bozer round three prop as well if I can get a good price on that. Chris Gutierrez, minus 215. Pedro Munoz, 160, plus 164. Gutierrez looking to crack the top 10 of the bantamweight division and would probably do so with a win over Pedro Munoz. Uh, right now, he is currently ranked at 13, Munoz at 9. 
Gutierrez is a minus 215 favorite. I haven't loved what I've seen from Pedro Munoz as of late. Uh, Munoz has, uh, in his recent fights, had the no contest against Sean O'Malley. Prior to that, is one and four. But listen to these losses. Dominic Cruz, Jose Aldo, Frankie Edgar, Aljamain Sterling. Now, I know that Gutierrez recently beat Frankie Edgar, but that fight against Edgar for Munoz was a very close fight, very close split decision. Yeah, to me, this is kind of a pass. I don't think I could put that kind of uh, a price tag on Gutierrez, who I think is a great up-and-coming fighter. But, yeah, Munoz is good, man. That's a tough one. Rafa Garcia, minus 250. Clay Guida, plus 190. I can see why the odds are like this, but uh, another one I kind of would want to stay away from. You got Bill Algio, minus 215. TJ Brown, plus 164. Um, I think Algio is the rightful favorite here and uh, might be worthy of, of parlaying in if you can find a good suitor. Mateusz Nicolau, minus 205. Brandon Royval, plus 158. I mean, Brandon Royval is always going to fight for your money. And it's not that Nicolau's not, but... Uh, I always like Roy Val at an underdog price. I might be looking at him here. Zach Cummings, minus 250. Ed, short fuse, Herman, plus 190. Um, I'm curious, how old is Zach Cummings? Like, people are, I'm sure, going to say, oh, you know, um, that Herman's a veteran fighter. Zach Cummings is 38 and hasn't fought since 2020, almost three years since his last fight. He's fought once during the pandemic. And uh, Ed Herman is 42. So it's still a three-year difference. You're at the upper age. But we got to keep in mind, Ed Herman is 3-1 and one in his last four. Mind you, they're against three guys that are no longer in the UFC, but it, reality is still reality here. He lost to Alonzo Menafield in a pretty close fight. Ed Herman might be worth taking here as an underdog, to be perfectly honest. Jillian Robertson, minus 125. Piero Rodriguez, minus 102. I think I would go with Rodriguez here as an underdog. Um, I think Jillian Robertson, of course, is really good. You might want to look at the Robertson sub prop, but uh, Piero Rodriguez, I think, is a really good up-and-coming talent. Uh, Daniel Zellhuber, who lost to Trey Ogden in, in his UFC debut, is minus 130 against Lando Venata, plus 102. I imagine Zellhuber is going to pull the trigger a little bit more in this one, but I would be a little bit cautious to, to take him here in this spot. Uh, Bruno Brazil, minus 188. She won on the uh, Contender Series. Denise Gomez, plus 146. Let me look into, uh, let me try to remember who they are, because I'm sure I watched them both fight. Bruna won the contract on Contender Series, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, she beat Marnik Mann. She had the, oh, she had that crazy head kick KO. And Denise Gomez lost to Loma Lukbunmi and also got a contract on Contender Series. Huh, interesting one. I, I would just pass altogether on this. I, I just don't know enough about these guys. Another interesting one, Gaston Bolanos making his uh, UFC debut um, against Aaron Phillips. Uh, Bolanos is 6-3, uh, and three, born in Peru, but only 30 years old. Had a good run in Bellator. Now coming into the UFC. And Aaron Phillips is a, a fighter who has had a lot of fight cancellations. He hasn't fought since his fight against Jack Shore nearly three years ago, had four canceled bouts since then. Two on two withdrawals were on his end and two were on his opponent's end. You know, I don't I always am cautious taking fights like this where Aaron Phillips, thirty three, we don't know how much development he's had in the last three years. And if he was battling injuries, that's never a good look. I would probably lean Balanos here, but I don't know um how confidently I would take him. And Lucia Pudilova, minus 148. Jocelyn Edwards, plus 116. Uh, I liked what I saw from Pudilova, if I recall, in her most recent fight. She scored a uh, ba- uh, finish win over Wu Yanan. Back in the UFC, I think that uh, I would favor her here. I-, I think over Jocelyn Edwards, I'd go with Pudilova. Probably by decision. This is a very top-heavy card, though. I mean, a lot of these fights earlier on are fighters that we just have not seen in a while. But uh, either way, good card. I'm, I'm excited for a lot of the different fights on this card, and I think it's going to be a, a solid one. Max Holloway fights never disappoint, and uh, I think the stakes are really high for both those guys. 
trying to see if there's any uh, headlines I might have missed. Oh, we've got a PFL event this week that I would actually like to touch on because I think it's a really good one. So PFL 3 is this week. And we've got Olivier Aubon Mercier against Shane Burgos. The odds are basically even at this point almost. Olivier, a very small favorite. Very interested to see how this one goes because uh, I think that Shane Burgos at 55 is going to cause a lot of problems. I think this is a very interesting first matchup for both these guys. And I'm eager to see how it goes. A lot of good matchups this week. Um, you got Ma- uh, Magomed Magomed Karamov against Ben Egley. You've got Haush Manfio against Alex Martinez, Canada Canadian trained uh, Alex Martinez. Stevie Ray against Nathan Schult. This this card you have there's a lot to like on this card. I I, I would recommend watching it if you're free this Friday night. It uh, airs on TSN, and uh, the prelims are on uh, TSN Plus. So if you get TSN Plus, make sure you check it out there. So. There you go. That's uh, our uh, roundup of fights this coming weekend. And I'm looking forward to it. Very, very much looking forward to both those cards. I think they're both going to be a lot of fun to watch. You've got good featherweight fights on the UFC side uh, at the top of their cards and uh, the tournament in the PFL with the uh, welterweights and lightweights. And that should do it for us this week. Looking forward to uh, these cards. The interview edition of the TSN MMA show should be out very soon as well, featuring interviews with Tanner Bozer, Max Holloway, Arnold Allen, Billy Quarantillo, and I might uh, throw uh, an Amanda Nunes interview in there for you. How's that sound? But uh, you'll have to check that out when that drops. Appreciate you tuning in. Until next week, be kind. Be well and be enthusiastic. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.